0: Something is bigger than me here that is essentially affecting change for me right now. It was like a moment of surrender, but the kind of surrender where you just want to cry because it's so beautiful. It's like, wow, something really bigger is happening here because it was, I just trusted what was happening.
1: Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast, where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Welcome to episode 64 of the art of humanity. I'm so excited about today's guest. Her name is Heather Grish, and she's a dear friend of mine, and she's also a client. In this episode, we talk about Ayurveda, what is it exactly, how she went from the corporate world to what she does today, the three doshas, vata, pitta, and kapha, their physiology and psychology symptoms. We also discuss the difference between the primal and intellectual mind, the importance of aligning with nature and thinking contextually, the main causes of disease, and why we need to get to the root of the cause sex, fasting, and why our mission is to discover what kind of plant we are. I want to bring you something that's helped me as a highly sensitive person, blue light blocking glasses. Did you know that artificial light is destroying our melatonin sleep and health? I've been using blue light blocking glasses from Raw Optics, and I've noticed a huge difference in my sleep. After the sauna, I'll put them on and go grocery shopping or to run errands and their lenses have been proven to specifically target the harmful frequencies emitted by phones, computers, screens, and LED lights. You may have seen clear lens blue blockers, sometimes called computer glasses, but these do not block the same specific dangerous frequencies of light emitted from screens or lights that raw optics do. It's really just a marketing gimmick. The most important function of artificial light glasses is my favorite topic. To protect sleep, because artificial light actually destroys our melatonin level, it destroys our sleep quality and overall health. All the other brands out there are only focused on selling lenses that are as clear as possible, but Raw Optics offers night lenses that block all blue and green light wavelengths in order to protect your eyes, sleep, and health. I love Raw Optics because they put the most effective lens technology into the most attractive frame styles to date. It does take a bit of time to get used to the lenses, but I promise it's worth it. For my listeners who want 10% off raw optics glasses, go to rawoptics.com, that's R-A-O-P-T-I-C-S dot com, and enter the code ART at checkout. For show notes and resources, go to artofhumanity.io. Now, let's go to the show. Welcome to the Art of Humanity, where we explore creativity and consciousness to allow you and your business to evolve. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by my friend and colleague, Heather Grish. Heather is the author of the Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility and the creator of the Four Fertility Factors training program. A board-certified Ayurvedic practitioner, she bridges the worlds of conventional and alternative medicine to help women and men heal their physical and emotional lives. Heather is on the board of directors for the National Ayurvedic Medical Association and has consulted with doctors, governments, and insurance companies. Heather, thanks so much for joining me on the
0: Art of Humanity. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica.
1: You seem to totally be in your dharma right now. You know, you just published this book. You conceived of your son and he came to you in a dream and and you just seem to totally be in flow and in love with life. And I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got so inspired to become an Ayurvedic practitioner and how you went from working in the corporate world to doing this work that you do now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had started teaching yoga when I was still in my corporate Job, you know, I was head of product development for a health insurance company. So I was always kind of interested in healthcare in some way. But I kind of woke up one day and on a New Year's Day, and I was hungover at a friend's house with my ex husband at the time. And I woke up on this couch New Year's Day and I said, okay, I'm going to be happy and healthy this year. I was hungover. And, you know, you sleep over when you're a responsible girl, you sleep over your friend's house when you get drunk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I did that and woke up and said, Okay, I'm going to be happy and healthy this year. And then I stopped and I go, Oh shit, I said that last year and I said that the year before and I said that the year before and I'm not doing anything different in my life. (laughs) I think we can all relate to that. Yeah. So that actually led me to the next month going to do a yoga teacher training in Costa Rica that led to me making a whole bunch of changes in my life. And I just started making decisions that were more based on what my heart wanted rather than what I thought I was supposed to do or the sort of safety decisions. And luckily I had made some money, right? So I was like, not worried about money. I was like, oh, I could not work for a couple of years and it's no big deal, whatever. I could take this risk. Totally. Yeah. And now it's just like, I'll never go back. I'll never go back to living a way of like, oh, this Safety only kind of thing or being super practical. I just, I had to shift into this different way of being. And you know what? If I end up making less money because of it, if I end up not having the fancy job title that I wanted all that time, I don't give a shit. I'm happier. Amen (laughs) to that, right? Yeah, it's amazing when we allow ourselves
1: to really align with our heart and to make decisions from our heart. None of the stuff that our mind tells us is important is really important if you're happy and you're aligned and
0: you're in tune and you're in flow. And that heart is so important. I'm so happy that we keep talking about this because the heart is the teacher. So in Sanskrit, the word heart is hriddaya. It sounds like rhythm, doesn't it? Hriddaya. Yeah, it does. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Think about what a heart does. It goes beat, beat, beat. It's like beating all the time. And it's a word that's made up of three characters. And each of the characters in Hridaya, each of them has their own meaning in and of itself. So the first character means receives. The second character means gives. And the third character means it just keeps doing it over and over and over and over again and it's such an energetic way of looking at the world i think it allows you to get in flow when you look at it like that because everything is a giving or a receiving totally mm-hmm. heather i wanted to interview you because you
1: are a wealth of knowledge in so many ways we met each other at our coworking space at Harmonia in Sausalito, and you'd see me addicted to the sauna <laughs> like almost every day. I'd go in, and then we started talking about our doshas and our yuveta, and we got a chance to know each other pretty well over the past few months. And you've helped me so many times with understanding my dosha, from what foods to eat to balance my doshas, to whether I should take a, you know, a hot sauna or drop into a really freezing ice bath. And it all goes back to your deep understanding of Ayurveda. As a fellow yoga teacher, we study Ayurveda in our yoga teacher training. And it's something that teaches us how to master our will and influence our nervous system. But you've actually gone on to study in India and then to bring this ancient wisdom back into the state. So, let's just start really high level for those who may be new to Ayurveda. What exactly is it?
0: Well, the word Ayurveda actually means the science of life or life knowledge, and it's a system of medicine that's been in India for say 5000 years, and it was the kind of dominant medical system that was in India before the British had popped in there for their time to rule there. And Sort of started to come back after the British left. But while the British were there, it had sort of been their medical system had occupied the dominance there. When people in the US started getting into, in the West in general, when people in the West started to get into yoga, meditation, and all the consciousness based philosophies that were coming out of India. Ayurveda sort of started to come with that. And it's it's a little bit of a slower uptake, I would say, than yoga, kind of right behind that on the trend. But it's basically a system of medicine that believes that when a human uh, in line with their original nature, that they're going to experience health, they're going to experience equilibrium in their bodily humors, which we call doshas, They're going to have properly formed tissues on their body. They're going to have hunger that's balanced, so it's not going to be too strong or too weak or erratic. And they're going to have a mind that is clear, and they're going to have senses that are clear. And all of that is going to lead to a person that rests in themselves. It's this idea that health is not, did you eat this many calories and did you go to the gym this many times a week and, oh, you don't take any medications or whatever we define health as. There's a very specific definition of health in Ayurveda, and it's when a person rests in themselves. And there's a lot of reasons why we would not be.
1: In mm-hmm. society, for one.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, in fact, Ayurveda sort of, I think Ayurveda came about because- of societies. Mm -hmm. I think what it does is it teaches people the original intuition of nature that we somehow have lost because actually Ayurveda was, it was actually a medicine for the wealthy and the kings. And, you know, they obviously (laughs) with wealth comes the, all of the pleasures of the world. And it is oftentimes the pleasures of the world that distract us from health and harmony. Let's say the chocolate covered peanut butter cups I have in my cupboard right now. Delicious. <laughs> so basically in our culture though, I would say a lot of people know Ayurveda as this kind of personality quiz kind of thing. That's that's what a lot of people hear about it as because the word dosha has gotten this rap for being Kind of like the Enneagram, you have a dosha is almost like a personality type, but it's not really that because the word dosha is it literally means that which can go out of balance. So we each have these doshas in our bodies and they're all the time, they're just at different levels depending on what's going on in the environment around us, what our behaviors have been like, what our emotions are like, what for women, sort of other factors having to do with cycles and things like that
1: really allows you to go through your life, not just existing, but thriving. And once I started to understand the doshas, when I learned all this during my yoga teacher training, my life really changed because I noticed how the doshas affect your body, your mind, your emotions, and your energy. And I started to observe and understand myself with greater wisdom. And it really allowed me to change kind of how I was living in areas where there were perceived weaknesses and I became more present to my life. And one of those things was acknowledging how naturally like vata I am. Without going into the detail of what that is, why don't you kind of discuss the three different doshas and what they all mean and how we can identify what dosha we may be?
0: Yeah. So like I said, the word dosha means that which can go out of balance. And There's this idea that when you were conceived in your mom's body with the egg of your mom and the sperm of your dad, when that moment happened where your code was written, where those fused together, that was a very specific kind of environment for you to be able to thrive in. In that moment, it was just the perfect conditions for you to come into being and to be created. And your whole life, you've been sort of moving in line with that nature or out of line with that nature, depending on environmental shifts and as well as your behavioral shifts in your life. So the doshas, they are going to fluctuate in your body. There are three of them in Ayurveda, and you have all of them in your body in different levels. And each of the, let's say, disease or imbalance classifications in Ayurveda, like I said, it is a system of medicine. It does have its own way of looking at disease, though, you know, that's tricky when you are trying to bring that to the US where there's already a disease classification system and there's Different diagnosis codes used by the insurance companies. And there's this whole existing system that Mm -hmm. is there. But in Ayurveda, they have an old, really old way of looking at how disease forms. And each of the disease patterns and diseases that exist, they are categorized by the dominant doshas involved. And so people who have a certain high amount of one of the doshas. So there are three of them, vata, pitta, and kapha are the three. I'll try to explain it really super basically uh, for anybody who isn't familiar with it.
1: Yeah, please do. Mm -hmm.
0: There's vata, which is maybe a drier body, one that's more dry, one that's very mobile. It comes about when there's a property of movement, when there's so much movement that's happening. That's vata. So that could be any change that happens in your life. That could be literally doing lots of exercise or you know, being a dancer or traveling on a plane a lot. So vata is this principle of movement. And you know from traveling that when you travel, your whole body and whole everything gets thrown out of whack. Totally. Yeah. So that's an example
1: of vata at play. Vata also means like, we're well not means, but it involves like lots of
0: ideas and kind of being like out there and otherworldly, right? <laughs> well, for sure. Because when you get into density of bodies, some people's bodies are not as dense as others. And I think we all know from modern physics, you know, that can be the case. And there are certain people's bodies that are not as dense, and that would be a Vata body. And those people are way more sensitive with that less density also, when your body is more dry, for example, they're more sensitive bodies because there's a little bit less uh, lubrication lubrication, for example, whether it's you know oil on your skin or mucus in your body, any kind of lubrication that you have there is a protective Uh, substance it's a protective coating and when you have a little bit less of that in the body it becomes more sensitive which you could use that word sensitive in a positive framework or a negative framework depending on the context right some people want to be sensitive some people want to be less sensitive but that just kind of comes with the territory with vata
1: right okay
0: yeah what are the other two doshas The second dosha is pitta, and that is where you've got sort of uh, the fire element more at play. And the property of pitta comes from high levels of transformation. And so it's hot. And if you were to think about lava that flows through out of the volcano or through the earth and then forms something later, that's a really great example of Pitta in the body. And the word pitta actually literally means that which cooks. So any substance in your body that has an enzymatic effect or anything that transforms things like your bile for example which will transform your fats into your body. And so people you know when you take this over from more macro level and a personality level people say you have a kind of job where you you literally are you're going into businesses and you're transforming businesses. You're a business consultant or running a innovation lab or something. So that kind of transformation energy, which you also had mentioned the idea energy of vata. And those certainly are related because there are people that can have lots of ideas and they're just essentially like the whirling thoughts. The In yoga, we call it the chitta vrittis, right? That are just whirling around. But the transformation piece comes in with pitta when there's actually something being done about it.
1: Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Because once you know your vata, you can actually apply principles and practices to ground yourself more so that you can work with that swirling energy and actually put that into motion or ground them a little more and implement them here in the physical plane. I love that. And, and pitta is spelled like pita bread, right? P-I-T-A.
0: It's got two T's. So P-I-T-T-A. Oh, okay. And I love this is actually really interesting. You know how you can cook uh, ceviche with lemons? So you could cook a raw fish with lemon. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you can do – that's essentially – pitta means that which cooks. So Mm -hmm. yeah, if a person is highly transformative environment, super intense, pitta – people a lot of pitta tend to be very sharp, persuasive personality types as well. So that will come with high levels of inflammation, In a body. So there's a correlation there. And that's why there's this this cooking thing is really relevant because you can get so hot that you actually like cook your own body. And if you start to see things that are red or something in your skin, just feeling hot. There are people who they'll basically, they're really people who have to take a shower every day because their hair is so oily, they're just oozing. And then there's kapha. Yeah, kapha. So kapha is the one that you want to hug. The kapha energy is loving, affectionate. The mother energy. It's the mother energy. It's, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it's yin, but it's cool and it's strong, dense, can be cloudy at times, heavy when it's out of balance. So there, again, there's positive and negative here because heaviness, you want heaviness in certain situations and you want lightness in other situations or degrees of these things, right? So we've got kapha is also kind of a wet body uh, and an earthy body. And these are the bodies that will tend to build a little bit faster. So this is where you get into, you know, everybody who wishes they could eat as much food as the person next to them without, you know, gaining 20 pounds or whatever. The Kafa body type is a builder body. So it will grow density and tissue faster and more easily than other bodies and that can be a challenge to deal with but these are also the same people that are tend to be more stable much to the frustration of the pittas and the vatas who want to make everything happen faster and with more speed and lightness and mobility and the the kafas can sometimes appear to be a little bit resistant and frustrate the crap out of everybody so <laughs> there are pros and cons with all of these things and i think the thing that i sort of gained a lot of studying ayurveda which i did for you know multiple years it was this idea to think contextually again
1: right so tell me more what does thinking contextually mean to you
0: yeah so i think that growing up the way that at least i was educated and i would assume that you know most other people are educated because i went through a mainstream educational System, right? I did as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I went to college and graduated magna cum laude and all that, and then smarty. Well, and then I went to graduate school for Ayurveda, which is you know at an ashram, basically. So that was in India. Yeah, part of it was there, but most of it was here. But I did live at an ashram on and off for three and a half years. So I definitely was in a, an alternate living situation (laughs) doing this. Yeah. And I guess when you do stuff like that, you kind of jump off the tracks that you've been used to in your life and you kind of get to see things from a different perspective. So I think the thing that I learned was I had sort of developed this highly logical, almost sort of memorized way of living my life. Mm. So think about the way that we're taught in school, you know, multiple choice or fill in the blank or, you know, having to memorize things. It's very black and white and
1: there's a right and a wrong when there's so much more nuance and gray areas in life, isn't there?
0: Exactly. And even in medicine. So you present with a symptom, you go into a doctor's office, then you get a diagnosis, then you get a label put on that thing. And then there's this label that exists. And there's this assumption that everything with that label is the same. But everybody got to that label on a very different pathway for that to be created. And what Ayurveda helped me realize, helped me see was the underlying patterns that caused a situation. And I think this is really what medicine's trying to get at where everybody, you know, it's kind of like the buzzword. Oh, let's get at the root cause. Let's get at the root cause. Let's get at the root cause. And after a while you're like, well, okay, how are you trying to get at that? Because if you're just still, you know, listening to the same people teach you the same things all the time,
1: Mm -hmm. you're not
0: going to get at it.
1: Totally. And it makes sense that there's really no perfect ideal to strive towards when you practice Ayurveda because our bodies are constantly changing. We're, our minds are in fluctuation and, you know, there is no ultimate ideal because it's a nonstop balancing act. Which is homeostasis, which you write about in your book that the body is usually aware of, but sometimes the mind overrides it because we're so conditioned into thinking that life is supposed to be a certain way. Once we've achieved that job title or that status or that house that our bodies will all of a sudden magically be perfect. And it's not actually biologically or mentally helpful for us to think this way, this linear thinking that we have all been indoctrinated into and we've all been educated into. Or better or worse. And this, this conditioning comes from everyone, from, you know, our government, from our parents, our teachers, advertising, and even our own egos, as you write in your book. So it's really fascinating that when we surrender to the fact that our minds are making poor choices, which we need to do when we deprogram our minds. And even if we think we're being smart, it's a way of like deconditioning and deprogramming to allow us to think contextually, as you just alluded to previously. So what is necessary to deprogram our minds and to surrender into this process when we are so taught? by media and everything I just listed to live a certain way and to live the black and white life. What are some steps that people can take if they're still finding themselves in that mindset of striving and the way that society perpetuates to be more open and receptive to maybe an Ayurvedic way of living and thriving?
0: I think it's so challenging. And I also think there's probably multiple ways that people can do it. I'll say that at the core of it, is really the ability to see clearly mm. and there's so much conditioning that we all have that it just happens we get conditioned, we learn things, it sticks, it becomes our paradigm, and unless you have a big disruptor in your life that comes along, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know yeah, your paradigm will Stay the same unless you are actively looking for ways to challenge your paradigm. So, I think that's why meditation has gotten so popular. I think that's why people want to run out into the woods and do forest bathing. And, you know, I think this idea of jumping off the tracks. And also, it's a process, right? Because and when anyone sits down to meditate, the first thing you realize, like, oh, my God, like, my thoughts are crazy. They go all over the place. And that's sort of the nature of the mind to do that, which can kind of get a little bit freaky when you first start meditating. I remember doing my yoga teacher training and people expressing that they had a lot of anxiety when they sat down to meditate, which I didn't have. But I knew a lot of people were experiencing that and they were getting really caught up in their thoughts. They like couldn't find the conscious space to observe them. It was really difficult for them. They were so wrapped up in them. And consciousness is such a complex thing, which I know you talk about all the time with your guests and something you're fascinated by. But it's so complex because where is the awareness being directed to is the awareness being directed to the thoughts is the awareness being directed to the body is the awareness being directed to the people and the environment it just it's like a flashlight it sort of goes all over the place so it's a process i think for people to realize that they actually are not the thoughts that they're the consciousness behind the thoughts and people find that i think through all different ways and i think meditation's a big one for me i write that's a big one for me. I see my thoughts through my writing. It's how I observe myself. It's so funny because it reminds me, I just interviewed Pete Holmes.
1: He's on episode 58 and we talk about this as well. And the way that he describes it in his book is like, you suddenly realize that you're like in the puppet, in the Muppets. You suddenly (laughs) realize that you're Jim Henson controlling the Muppets instead of Kermit the Frog.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's hard because, you know, I think when you start attaching yourself to the thoughts, then, you know, there's, there's all the processing that has to go on with that. It's, you know, whatever happened to you growing up or whatever pissed you off last week at work or whatever's in there, cause we have all got it. And finding the ability to let it go and to then start to direct where it's going. And that's where the whole sort of eight limbs of yoga comes into play with, you know, the processes that they lay out for people to achieve that ultimate transcendence, that ultimate goal of samadhi. So but really, to me, it all comes down to this, like, how do you see clearly? So if you're living your life, there's this really cool concept in Ayurveda that's why, you know, the, there are like three main causes of disease. Mm-hmm. And the first one is that your mind, your intellect made a mistake. Okay. So you just made a mistake. And let me give you an example of that. This is so embarrassing. But when I was 14, I started dating this boy. He dealt marijuana and I wanted to uh, smoke marijuana with him. And mm-hmm. so I said, I want to smoke a cigarette first because I don't want to cough smoking marijuana. I thought that would make me look like a loser because I coughed smoking marijuana. <laughs> okay. So I wanted to practice not coughing so I could impress this boy. <laughs> <laughs> but that's an example of how like my logic was working at that time, right? right? So that my intellect, however I got programmed and the values that I had at that time was causing me to make a decision like that. Now, maybe the decision equivalent today would be, oh, you know, I've got this really bad headache, but I've got to show up for this business meeting when I really just need to lay down.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So that's maybe a more sort of relevant example. I just like to tell the one of me making that stupid decision when I was 14. Hey, we were all 14 once. <laughs> <laughs> so there's that. That's the first cause of disease is like your intellect just makes like a bad choice. Right. Right that is harmful to you.
1: And then that takes its toll on the body because there's a disconnect between what your body truly wants and the logical thinking in your mind. And that kind of shows up as like a trauma in the body. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely. I mean, whenever there's a disconnect between the mind and the body, you know, the mind thinks it's winning, but the body will actually win and the body will retaliate. The body will try to correct what the mind is doing as well. But when the mind is really not listening for a very long time, the body will retaliate and the body will you know, shut down and start to rebel. So that's what you don't want to have happen, why you want your intellect to be paying attention and listening even to your body and what's going on.
1: Every time I hit publish on a new episode of my podcast, I'm filled with such immense gratitude for the ability to co-create at this time in history. Those on this shared path of co-creation are ushering in a new consciousness on this planet. It's a new state of being with a capital B versus the old paradigm of doing. Many of us humans need a manual on how to simply exist. Podcasting is one way to broadcast our light. It's a way to activate our human potential and bring in business. My team and I have created results for our clients like a six-figure deal with Spotify within one year of launch, Getting ranked as an Apple New and Notable, deals with iHeartRadio and Himalaya. Stitcher has even promoted our podcasts to climb the charts. We're creating success for podcast hosts from all over the world while working smarter, not harder. If you're looking to take the mystery out of podcasting and want to start or scale your podcast into a globally recognized media empire, go to go.artofhumanity.io slash masterclass. To learn more about my profitable podcast masterclass. Again, that's go.artofhumanity.io/slash masterclass. Now, back to the interview.
0: So, the second cause of disease in Ayurveda is that there was a misuse of the senses. So, something in the sense organs wasn't perceived properly or even just you know the idea of eating for taste you know we eat because it's pleasurable rather than we eat because we need that nourishment or we eat because we're going hungry just this idea of all the sense organs whether it's the tongue the ear the eye whatever That we can abuse them. You know, some people believe in aromatherapy in which we actually use that in Ayurveda, but some people are kind of like weird about it and Mm -hmm. spraying it all over their house all the time. And, you know, (laughs) right. Interesting,
1: yeah, because it, it reminds me of a interview I did with Alexandra Cousins on episode fifty five, where she discovered this herself and has gone through her own transformation and process. And she used to be a foodie, and you know she talks about how she used to misuse the senses, and now she does these crazy multiple day fasts that have influenced her perception and stuff. So it all integrates and, and it all goes together somehow in, in the big scheme of things when you're looking at the metaphysical realm of our mind, body and soul. So, yeah, let's go on to number 3.
0: Yeah, I love that you brought that up. So, the third one is I have a special place in my heart for this one. It's kala parinama's the Sanskrit and kala means time. And kala also means and I wrote about this in my book Kala means season, which is one of the four fertility factors. And season time kala there's a essentially The cause of disease that happens when you, it's not that what you did was wrong, it's that you really just did it at the wrong time. Mm. The timing was off. Wow, that's powerful. Right? Yeah.
1: Tell me more. What does that mean? Like, give us an example of wrong timing.
0: So, let's say, I think this is probably maybe one of the most common ones. You know, it's eating too frequently, Mm -hmm. is an example of that. Or with women having, trying to have babies when we're 40 instead of when we're 26. Mm hmm. You know, I was later having a kid.
1: Right. Yeah. hmm.
0: And, you know, it worked out for me. It doesn't work out for everybody. An example, more of a gender neutral example, would be that it's not bad to read a book, but it's probably not a great idea to read one at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. It's not bad to eat dinner but it's probably better to eat dinner at 6 or 7 rather than 10 or 11 yep so the not respecting of the natural rhythms that are are kind of going on around you and the body will start to suffer when that happens and there's a whole branch of medicine emerging called circadian medicine which really comes from a lot of the ideas in Ayurveda, which you know we operate based on a, a clock that exists where it believes that certain things are best done at certain times of the day from a biological perspective, which may not always be the case for our creativity. For example, like I'm a creative person. I know you're a creative person. And sometimes you get that wind, right? Mm-hmm. It just happens to you and you're like, I want to keep, you know, you're working on something and you're, you're just in the groove and you're, finding yourself at 1 a.m. and and you're still in this space and the flow and and those moments will come but if you live like that all the time that's going to cause problems. So I think it's that's this is a really big challenge for, you know, anyone who's a creative person.
1: Totally. And this yeah. reminds me of something you mentioned different creative times of day when we get inspired. Does the season have anything to do with the location and geography of where we are in the world? Because I noticed how when I lived on the East Coast, I could easily stay up until three in the morning writing and creating and producing. And when I moved across the country to California, I stopped doing that. I literally couldn't stay up past midnight. So do you know anything about how the geography affects our creativity when it comes to seasons?
0: Yeah. I mean, that word kala has so many meanings. It means time. It means season. It also means climate. Ooh. Yeah. Climate. Yeah. It's essentially time and space, right? Mm -hmm, Which is such a difficult thing to even wrap your head around if you try to truly understand the meaning there uh, rather than just the label that we've slapped on it to make our lives easy. If you really contemplate the meaning of it, it's really big. I would guess that maybe an astrologer would probably have a better answer than me on this. But Mm -hmm. the positioning of your body, where you are in relation to the sun, the way that the position of where you're in relation to the moon, the positioning of your... And there's a whole science in the Vedic system called Vastu, which is essentially like Indian feng shui, where they would probably go into this a lot more than Ayurveda, actually. Mm -hmm. And each... Shape around you will have a different effect because we respond to the stimuli in our environment. you know, so if the stimuli changes, even if it's a small degree, a very highly sensitive person will definitely pick up on that mm-hmm. totally. It makes a lot of sense, yeah.
1: So I love that you talk about the modern woman and, you know, the primal and intellectual mind of. Modern women today, and you know when we kind of tune into our bodies and listen, like you gave the example earlier about you know not going into a business meeting when we have a headache, how do we listen to that intuitive guidance of our bodies versus just thinking that we're being lazy or to quote unquote toughen up and go to that meeting because there is such a disconnect in the modern world between the intellect and the body so so what are some tools for women and even men? even men, even more so men sometimes because there's a lot of the men, not to stereotype, but a lot of men are even more disconnected than women. But I think as we get older, we all start to like listen to our bodies a little bit more frequently. But what are some tips right now, I guess, as people have the ability to say no or to listen to our bodies a little more than normal because we're all at home right now? Are there any ways that we can realign with the rhythms of our bodies?
0: Yeah. I think – First of all, it requires paying attention, but then how do you develop a practice around paying attention to your body? (laughs) So we walk around all day and our attention is outside of us, whether it's on the work that we're doing, you know, I have a three-year-old I'm chasing him, making sure a car doesn't hit him when he's riding his bike around the neighborhood, whatever. So wherever your attention is going in that given moment, can you develop a practice of simultaneously feeling your body? Mm. And that's hard because it's like a flashlight that wants to go in one direction, but can you try to create a more sort of 365 degree kind of awareness which the flashlight wouldn't be as narrowly focused. The, The awareness would be a little bit broader so that you can feel a wider, broader sensation of yourself in the environment. And so that's the way I would sort of describe it from a body feel perspective. And I think paying attention to the emotions, paying attention to pain, those are the greatest teachers, which is why the overuse of painkillers is such a shame because the pain is a teacher. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes you get to the point where like you can't get rid of the pain no matter what you do. And that's extremely unfortunate. But if there's pain being caused and you can actually ease up, you can do something that changes the pain. You got to get curious about that because would you rather take a painkiller or feel or start to pay attention to what you're doing to create it and stop that process from taking place. You know, we talked earlier about finding the root cause. The root cause requires that you pay attention and you think back a little bit. Ooh, mm-hmm. What did I do to make that happen? Totally.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that, that brings up a lot of fear and triggers for people in and of itself because, well, you know, we're taught not to think deeply or go to the root cause because then that itself is triggering for many people as well so this is asking a lot of people today <laughs> and you know i think what i found fascinating in your book and you know this is kind of um a way that people can turn off that intellect and we talked about this on the phone the other week which i found fascinating there's a spot that you can activate that brings us in touch with our primal energy which is at the base of our skull and yogis refer to it as the head knot And as you were talking, I was reminded about a pain that I was in about a year and a half ago. I I developed like a reverse curve in my neck because I've always been looking down at my MacBook. I'm an entrepreneur. I live on my MacBook and I was staring down at a screen for all these years and it actually led to extreme excruciating pain in like my shoulder and my neck which I'm fine now. I had to go to a chiropractor, but I didn't know that my neck was like that until I was in extreme pain. And then I had to reverse the curve in my neck. And I would go to a chiropractor who would touch this point in the base of my skull. I would get four adjustments a week at the time. And after I left, I literally could be like my mind went blank. And I don't necessarily know if he was touching exactly that spot, but he was touching the my skull and my neck. And um I noticed how I was so more in touch with my primal energy, and during this time i'm I was having really deep dreams and sleeping and and having lucid dreams even during this time so tell us more about this part at the base of our skull because. I am fascinated by this topic, and it's something that you discovered, and you wrote about in your book, and I discovered this recently through talking with you, and I don't think a lot of people know about this.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because the yogis give so much credit to the third eye and the crown chakra, right? It's like all about third eye, third eye everything. But for those of us who are highly intellectual to begin with, right, there's sometimes this thing that happens where the intellect starts to dominate the body a little too much. I know what's best, right? And so I feel I was I can be that way and I was that way for a long time. And what happened to me, the story that I had shared with you before was definitely kind of weird. When I met the father of my child, I was in my late 30s and I was looking for my next partner and I knew that the next person that, I was going to be with, was going to be the father of my kid if I was going to have one. And because it was, you know, the clock was ticking. So I was really paying attention to him a lot. Like, what is this person about? I was really, really, really excited, waited so long. I was like, I really want to do a good job with this. And he started doing this. Thing where he just started coming up behind me and sticking his finger in this little spot in the back of my neck, kind of like at the top of your neck where your head and your neck come together in the occiput there occiput, what a fun name, yeah, and he just would come up behind me randomly when we were just standing around chatting and just or sitting around. He would put his finger in this little spot and just hold it there, and he would hold it there, and my brain would just stop at first, it scared me, I was like what are you doing to me? This feels really weird. Like, cause I, I don't think I really ever knew what it was like to have my thoughts stop. Even though I'd been meditating and doing yoga and teaching yoga and all this crap for years, I don't think I really ever had my mind stop before. Mm -hmm. And it just went blank or how would you describe it? You know, it's just the awareness settled.
1: Yeah. Yeah
0: the awareness just settled. That's the only way I can describe it. And so he would come up behind me and and he has a PhD in biomedical science. So me, I'm going, what does he know about that? He's doing something weird because he wants to seduce me. And like Mm -hmm. I had this whole story in my head about how he was like trying to get me to fall in love with him. And he was pushing this little spot in the back of my head, (laughs) the love button. Exactly. So I was like, is this my love button? But I didn't think too much about it when he did it. I just was like, what's he doing to me? That's kind of what it was about. And then a couple of weeks later, I was away at the ashram Ayurveda school that I used to go stay at once a month. And one of my classmates came up behind me and randomly put her finger in that spot. Wow. And I just stopped and I, you know, I let her do it because it feel, felt so good. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I just, you know, afterwards I go, what do you know about that spot? She goes, I don't know. I just felt like doing that to you. Wow. Then, okay, that's starting to get a little bit weird. And then a couple of weeks after that, this all happens in about the span of a month. I go to this yoga workshop. With one of my favorite teachers, she's probably in her 80s now. She was in her 70s at the time, Angela Farmer. And her whole work is about unfolding the feminine. That's what she calls it. And she studied with Ayengar, who's a very sort of linear kind of yoga teacher. He's the guy that made the props so popular because like the goal is to get your body in a certain shape. And if you can't get there, make sure you get a prop to get there, right? Mm-hmm, totally. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. But she studied with him, she and her boyfriend years ago. And then apparently the story goes where like Iyengar smacked her boyfriend with a, a yardstick or something mm-hmm. while he was in a pose. And they they had it and they defected. And so she decided to create this whole separate thing. I think she really went on this journey being so disenfranchised by that of, you know, just dis- rediscovering her feminine aspect. So I go to study in this workshop with her. and. She opens the workshop talking about that spot. Wow. And she lives in Greece, so she tells this Greek story of Inanna. It was just a Greek myth and Inanna goes, I think her sister is in the underworld and she has to go save her sister in mm-hmm. the underworld. Wow. And she's she's very brave. I think she's like a queen or a princess or something and she goes into the underworld to rescue her sister. And she starts talking about this story, but she's talking about it in relation to this point in the back where everybody had been sticking their finger in my neck in the last month. And she talks about it and she, you know, we did some yoga poses and some adjustments on each other that were designed to sort of open up that spot. And I just said, what is going on here? And when those three things lined up, okay, you have coincidences all the time, right? You have something that happens and then maybe the next week something related to it happens and you're like, oh, it's just because I'm paying attention to it now, right? You have those moments all the time. Yeah. Synchronicities. Mm -hmm. Exactly. This string of three was like, no, no, no. Something is bigger than me here that is essentially – affecting change for me right now. Wow. Yeah. You're tapped in. Yeah. And that really was it was like a moment of surrender, but the kind of surrender where you just want to cry because it's so beautiful. Mhm. That kind of surrender where you just, you know, it's like wow, something really bigger is happening here. And cuz it was I trusted it. I just trusted what was happening. And uh, yeah, that's how I discovered that point. So then I got really curious and I was like, I started looking up in Ayurveda, we studied uh, marma therapy, which is kind of like, it's actually where acupuncture came from because the Ayurvedes went to China and taught them marma therapy and they refined it and turned it into acupuncture.
1: Wow. Interesting.
0: Cool. Yeah, yeah. So we studied marma therapy in Ayurveda school, but I don't remember hearing about that point. So I started looking through whatever I could find to learn about that. And ultimately, I found discussions about that point in the yogic texts in the work of Baba Hari Das, actually, who was the silent monk that was featured in Ram Das's book, Be Here Now. Mm -hmm. You've probably read that one. Yeah, of course. I love Ram (laughs) Das. one of the books that Baba Das, who took a vow of silence from the year of 1952 till he died, which was just a few years ago when I was in school there, it was when he died actually. But one of his books, he had written about that point about wow. muscle. Yeah, it's called Fascinating. Muscle. Yeah.
1: Is it more or less powerful than the third eye? How does it relate to the third eye? Because like you said, I think we're all familiar with the power of the third eye and or maybe listeners aren't familiar with it but how does it relate to it or is there a benefit to choosing the focus on the third eye over that point in the back of our necks
0: yeah i think it's when it's the way to tap back into the i call it the primal nature of the body the urge based way of being in your body Mm. So, highly correlated with breathing, highly correlated with yawning, you know, urges. And in, in Ayurveda, we have certain, there's li- literally a discussion about the urges in the body and how you shouldn't block them. For example, like if you have to sneeze, don't hold it in. Or if you have to burp, don't mm-hmm. hold it in. Or any sort of thing that happens to you. And think about all of this sort of social conditioning we have around. Urges of our body. I mean, crying is an urge. Yeah. Don't cry in front of people or don't cry. Be, you know, put your big girl pants on or big boy pants on or Mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But these are urges that are biological and functional urges of the body that have a purpose. Mm -hmm. biologically yeah maybe there was a thought that preceded it that had an influence on it and maybe a trigger in the environment that influenced all of that but it's these urges that if we don't listen to them they can actually cause a problem in the body in fact some of the urges if you block them in the ayurvedic texts talk about how they'll actually cause heart problems
1: wow okay
0: Yeah. If you're a closed system, right, with like openings, your body's sort of a, maybe we'll call it mostly closed system, right? But it's got all these openings that go in and out of them. It's got to maintain a pressure balance and things like that inside. And if you are messing with the flow of things coming out of your body, then you're going to mess with that pressure system inside.
1: Totally. That makes sense because, you know, our hearts are one of the most powerful muscles, I think, if not the most powerful muscle in the body. I think the tongue might be a little more powerful in terms of physicality. I'm not sure. I'm not a doctor, so don't quote me on that. <laughs> but um, when we tune into you know, aligning with nature, I think Joseph Campbell has a quote, something like, allow our heart to be in tune with the rhythm of nature. You know, That's when we can tap into ourselves and get access to this higher consciousness and this higher awareness state of living. So it's interesting because while we do want to allow our bodies to, you know, go through the natural rhythms by yawning, by crying, by being in tune to that and allowing that to happen, there's one kind of rhythm. But then I'm fascinated because of the extreme opposite of that, which is Fasting. And I want to talk specifically about sex fasting, which you mentioned in your book and you talk about in your book, which is the exact opposite energy. It's like, oh, if you have an urge to have sex, you should orgasm. So, what is a sex fast and why is it beneficial for for people to do, whether you're in a relationship or whether you're single? How does that affect our mind and our doshas and our energy in the world?
0: Yeah, I wrote about sex fasting in the book. Which, you know, my book's about how to help someone prepare for pregnancy naturally and how a couple can actually sort of prepare their bodies and everything for that and their minds and their emotions and their environment and their all that, their lifestyle. Hopefully doing a great job taking care of our planet at the same time. So the context around the fasting has to do
1: with more so like when you're trying to conceive of a baby, but I found it interesting.
0: I do think it's beneficial and it's sort of, think about when you studied yoga, right? The brahmacharya, right? Mm-hmm. So its I would say it could even be, you know, brahmacharya is a principle of it. So brahmacharya is essentially abstaining from having sex. And there are some biological reasons that that could be beneficial. So for example, a person who's depleted or a person who has a really dry body you know, because you need your your fluids in your body to be replenished in order for you to be fertile, for example. So that there's one sort of, I guess, condition or body type or whatever that would benefit from that. But then you go to also the, maybe the psychological and sensory aspect of sex, which is totally different, you know, um, than making sure that the body is of a certain condition to have sex, right? Because you want things to be lubricated so that when you have sex, it doesn't cause pain and things like that. But when you think about pleasure, whether it's sex or food or any kind of sensory pleasure, there's the ability for it to cloud your judgment. (laughs) Mm. And that's why it's even a thing in yoga. I mean, I remember I was raised Catholic, so when I started studying yoga, I was like, "Don't tell me not to have sex. know <laughs> <laughs> I was really like annoyed with that part of yoga teacher training. I actually remember having a little argument with my teacher about that one, but I think as I started to meditate more and have more of an awareness of what was going on multiple levels, right? What my thoughts, what's going on with my body, what's going on with my emotions, my energy levels, all that stuff. I started to get really curious about like, when do I get aroused? Like, is, does it happen more at certain times of the month? You know, because there's a trigger, right? You see someone for men, they have certain triggers for women. They have different triggers. We have psychological triggers that also will trigger the sexual urges and things like that, or memories and things like that will trigger sexual urges. But I was really super curious about the biological, like just observing the pure biological stuff. Like, do I just naturally, do people naturally get, More aroused, or women anyway, when they're ovulating, for example. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to observe that stuff about myself because I don't think there was really a lot of like research on that that I could find, right? um, Biomedical research. So I think it's really kind of a learning tool. And then also the the other thing that I see that happens a lot in fertility is all these people that are not even attracted to their partners anymore, and yet they're like trying to have babies together. And, you know, that's really a weird thing, I think, because, well, you also have countries where you have arranged marriage and stuff like that. So it's not like that weird, perhaps, that (laughs) arousal would need some help sometimes. But I guess I think something happens to us when we develop a relationship with someone. If you start that path, whether, you know, you started when you were. When you start as a woman, when you started, you know, having the ability to get pregnant, you automatically like go on the pill or on birth control or whatever. You've done all these things in your life to sort of block these energies. Totally,
1: Yeah, absolutely. It, it does. Like the world we live in today is not friendly to allowing the receiving of the intuitive nature of and the intuitive energies that are in us.
0: And <laughs> so I love I mean, and even children, I mean, children get aroused, you know, it's, it's a totally like normal thing. And I think for me that that's really why I was personally very curious about that. But I also know the medical benefits of or the Ayurvedic medical benefits, I will call them not the sort of conventional benefit. I don't think mm-hmm. there's any like a sanctioned research on this in biomedical science, but you know, like basically that you are going to make sure your body's in good condition to have sex. That's the practical way.
1: Right. And that's so important. And that's something that we don't really think about in our world today. It's, you know, it's more about the outside external conditions, whether we have a six pack, whether we have, you know, all that stuff that's like really materialistic and reductionist versus the Ayurvedic way, which is tapped in and
0: turned on. (laughs) So exactly. And the body knows what it wants. You know, the body knows what it wants. But if you can't piece the difference, if you can't detect the difference between what your mind is telling your body to want and what your body actually wants, that can get tricky.
1: Really tricky. Your book is giving to the world. It's something that has never existed before in history. And you are the person to give this to the world. And I find that it blows me away that there hasn't really been a book like this to ever exist before. And I love that you have created it and wrote it. And I think it's a brilliant masterpiece. It shows your journey really well, which seems to be the journey of many women that are out there today. So what is the main message that you want people, readers in particular, to take away from your book, The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility?
0: Yeah. I think just every plant needs a different environment to grow in. So you've got certain seeds grow at certain times of the year and in certain environments and indoor, outdoor, this kind of light, certain type of soil, things like that. And I think all of our jobs as humans is to figure out what kind of plant you are. (laughs) I love that. That's a great visual and analogy.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So you figure out what kind of plant you are, you know the environment you need to be in, and then you're going to thrive. And you can be completely selfish about it because you are at the center of it. Mm, Wow. I love that. That begs me to wonder, what plant are you, Heather? Oh, gosh. Well, I know what plant I'm not. (laughs) I don't know what kind of plant I am. I'm probably a little bit like an orchid. Mm, okay. I like that. Probably a little bit like an orchid. Cool. Yeah, I dig it. Where can listeners go to find you online? You can find me on my website at heathergrish.com, and that's G-R-Z-Y-C-H for my last name. I can also find me on Instagram, at Heather Grish. And my book, The Ayurvedic Guide to Fertility, is also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Bookshop. Thank you so much for joining me, Heather. I've loved our time together. Thank you so much for inviting me. You
1: made it to the end of this podcast. This means the world to me. I hope you enjoyed our conversation feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. You can also message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle is beingishuman. That's B-E-I-N-G-I-S-H-U-M-A-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've enjoyed from this episode. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on Apple Podcasts right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. You can also share this episode with two of your friends who you think would enjoy it. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve.